Lord, you may uh, remain standing. Uh, and I'm going to read our sermon scripture from Mark 5, verses 21 through 43. Listen to these words. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. They came one through, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out of him, immediately turned about to the crowd, and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but is sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them, very word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Lord God, your word is uh, indeed a wonderful blessing and a true gift. Uh, Lord, we thank you for already leading Michael's wrestling with this text and his preparations, laying a message on his heart for us. And now I pray, Lord, that your spirit would give him a humble confidence in your truth and a peace in his heart, a clear mind ability to communicate what he wants to hear. And likewise, Lord, I pray that your spirit would illumine our hearts and minds and give us the ability to listen well and to absorb that we would go away renewed by hearing your truth and spurred on in our faith. We pray all this in your name. Good morning, Christ Church. 
it has been such a joy to get to meet so many of you, and I look forward to meeting uh, more of you after the service and, and later on. And it's an honor to be able to open God's Word with you this morning. Uh, I want to say again thanks to the search team and to the session for all of their kindness to me and Jen during this process. Um, I chose the passage that you just heard read from Mark 5 uh, to preach on for a few reasons. One, I know that you've been going through this series called Flocking to Jesus, and that's what got me thinking about this passage. It's one of my favorites because it showcases the tender compassion of Jesus along with his resurrection power. And and also, uh, Dan Churchwell took the passage about the woman at the well, so I couldn't pick that one. Um, and uh, But, like Jim mentioned, I needed to hear this message from God's Word this morning, so I'm praying that he will uh, speak to your hearts as well through how he has been teaching me from his Word. So, if you're here this morning and you found your, your heart has grown cold or callous to God, by the normal, everyday things of life, then this passage is for you. If you've ever found yourself in a season of waiting, then this passage is for you. I'm not talking about the expectant waiting of Advent or the, ooh, we just got engaged and we can't wait for the wedding day to come. No, this passage is more like, I've been waiting for God to answer my prayers and all I hear is silence. If that's what you've experienced, then this text is for you. If the voices that you hear in your head or those around you have this uh, constant communication of criticism, and you desperately, desperately need the compassion of someone who sees you and loves you, this passage is for you, and even more than that, this Jesus is for you. But he has even more for you than you've bargained. So let's dive into our passage. First, we encounter a desperate father. A desperate father. At the end of the previous chapter, Mark 4, Jesus has shown his disciples that he has authority over creation when he calms the storm. They think that he's asleep to their greatest fears, but he actually replaces their lesser fears with an even greater worshipful fear of him. Leaving them, asking amongst themselves, who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And then Jesus gets off the boat and he performs an exorcism. Casting out demons from a man to show that dark, demonic forces are no match for him. So it's off the tail of those encounters, Jesus gets in a boat, crosses to the other side of the sea. A crowd gathers around him, and that's where our, our passage today picks up. And we meet Jairus. Uh, he's described as one of the rulers of the synagogue. So this is a man, a well-respected religious leader with standing in society, who from the outside looks like he has everything going well for him in life. But there's one thing that isn't going well. He's desperate. He's desperate because his 12-year-old daughter is on death's doorstep. We don't know what all Jairus has heard about Jesus, which of his miracles maybe he's observed. But we know that for Jairus, the clock is ticking, and Jesus is his only hope. So this successful, put-together man drops to his knees and begs Jesus 
please, if you don't come right now, my daughter is going to die. You are my only hope. Will you come and heal her? And without a word, Jesus goes. Now, in a moment, we're going to compare Jairus with the unnamed woman that has this blood flow issue because the passage is written in this way that necessarily intermingles their stories. But it's also interesting to compare Jairus with another religious leader, Nicodemus, who we find in John chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night because he doesn't want people to, to see his interaction with Jesus. Jairus doesn't have that option. He's desperate. If he waits until evening, then his daughter's going to die. So his desperation drives him to Jesus. So we have this picture of Jesus and Jairus racing through the crowd of people, uh, bobbing and weaving and desperately trying to get there to his sick daughter who's on death's doorstep. And all of a sudden enter this woman. Unlike Jairus, we don't know her name. We only know that she's suffering. Verse 25 says that she's had a discharge of blood for 12 years. This isn't just her normal monthly cycle. This is a menstrual issue where the life has been slowly being sucked out of her over time. It's painful and it's awkward and there's no end in sight. And look at what it says in verse 26. Not only did she suffer from this ailment, but she suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. Did you catch that? Whether it was through intentional mistreatment or just an inability to solve this medical mystery, the doctors added to her suffering while taking all of her money. It would have been bad enough if this happened today, but back then it was even worse for her. Women already had an uphill battle in society. On top of that, her illness meant that she was ritually unclean due to Levitical law. So this woman was likely unmarried, or if she was married, she couldn't have children. She had this mystery illness that left her broke. And on top of all of that, the fact that she was unclean meant that nobody could touch her without becoming unclean themselves. So this suffering woman had likely gone over a decade without as much as a hug or a hand on her shoulder. Can you imagine the loneliness that she felt? So she comes to Jesus. She's heard the stories and the rumors about his miraculous powers. She thinks to herself, if I can just touch his clothes, then I will be made well. So she tracks him down and she does just that. She reaches out and touch, touches his garments and she's healed just like that. Twelve years of physical, emotional, and financial suffering gone in an instant. But Jesus isn't done with her yet. He stops and he turns and he sees her. And he says, who, who touched my garments? And the disciples are like, Jesus, are you crazy? 
We're in a crowd. Every, like, who hasn't touched you? But Jesus stops and he sees her. A woman who has felt unseen for a decade plus is seen and known by Jesus. And she comes to him in fear and trembling and falls down at his feet and tells him the whole truth. And listen to what Jesus says in verse 34. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. He calls her daughter. There are a lot of places in Scripture where God the Father calls his people either son or daughter, but this is the only place where Jesus calls someone daughter. Do you see his tenderness? Do you see his compassion? The story has slowed to a crawl, and Jesus takes the time to be fully present with this suffering daughter. He loves her enough not to let her take her healing and leave anonymously, but instead, he restores her to community so that she can be fully known by others in a way that she hasn't been for the past 12 years. Her illness meant that she wasn't allowed to be present in corporate worship for over a decade. Many of us got a little taste of that with COVID, where we couldn't gather regularly in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. Um, at, at our church, we had a family where uh, one of the teenage sons got diagnosed with leukemia in January 2020, so two months before COVID. Because of that, him being immunocompromised and getting treatment, their family had to stay away from corporate worship for the better part of two years. So talking with him, talking with his siblings, talking with his parents, they felt the weight of being apart from God's people in corporate worship. And yes, like we would see them personally and they could watch the church out a live stream so they could watch that and they could listen to sermons, but Christians are meant to gather with God's people and worship. And when we can't do that, it's isolating. So this healing of Jesus is all the more impactful on this woman. So if this scene were a movie with a professional soundtrack, uh, the part that we were just in has this like the lull of the stringed instruments and it's soft and it's sweet. And then like there's this crash of the minor chord, fast-paced music, because in comes this messenger who announces that Jairus' daughter is dead. Jesus has lost the race against time. It's over. Why bother him any longer? But look at what Jesus says to Jairus in verse 36. Do not fear, only believe. What does that mean, do not fear, only believe? Well, whatever emotions Jairus was going through at the moment, whatever he thought of Jesus for letting his daughter die, Jairus believed, and he went with Jesus, and Jesus' inner circle and left the crowd behind. And they get to the house, and everybody is in full-blown mourning mode. And Jesus asks this puzzling question and makes this baffling statement in verse 39. He says, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. 
what's going on here? Well, you can tell from the fact that they laughed at Jesus that they thought he was crazy. Does this guy not know what being dead is? Is this a princess bride moment where she's only mostly dead? No, Jesus knows what death is. But he also knows that his healing power is stronger than death. And it's not that Jesus is opposed to emotions in the face of death. Remember, when Jesus' friend uh, Lazarus died, Jesus wept, even though he knew he was going to bring Lazarus back to life in a couple days. See, trusting God's sovereignty in the midst of the difficulties of life and the sting of death does not mean that we have to have a stoic lack of emotion. Christians are called to weep with those who weep, to lament in the face of sin and suffering, to go with others and ourselves to the deepest places of sadness. Why? Because the hope of the resurrection, that God will one day make all things new and make everything sad come untrue, that hope frees us to experience deep sadness and rich joy at the exact same time. And we get a little foretaste of that here. Look at verse, 20, uh, verse 41. Jesus takes the sleeping daughter by her hand and says, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. The term for little girl in the original language isn't like, hey, you little girl. It's more endearing, like sweetie or honey. And the word arise, interestingly, it's, it's the normal phrase for when you get up in the morning, but it's also the same word that's used for the resurrection. So even as Jesus takes this little girl and says, sweetheart, it's time to wake up, he's giving us a little taste of the resurrection. Jesus makes it seem so effortless that after he raises the girl from the dead, he tells her parents to go make her breakfast. It's another little touch of care from Jesus. Now, in order to really understand what's going on here, we need to do two things. We need to look back at how these two miracles relate to each other, and then we need to look ahead at how this big story relates to the even bigger story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So first, what do we learn from the intermingling of these two miracles? Well, we see first that Jesus doesn't care who you are in the eyes of the world when you come to him in desperation. Jairus has a name. The bleeding woman doesn't. I mean, she does have a name, but we don't know it. Jairus is a wealthy, well-respected male religious leader, and this poor woman can't even attend corporate worship. But Jesus is not impressed by all the trappings of worldly success. In fact, sometimes they can be more of a hindrance than a help because they give us the illusion of self-sufficiency. Remember what the classic hymn, Come Ye Sinners, says. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need for him. Do you know that you need Jesus on a daily basis? Have you believed the lie of success and self-sufficiency? 
Did you come to him at one point in desperation only to slowly abandon it in favor of growing independence? Never forget that the gospel isn't just a one-time thing to get you into the Christian life. The gospel is an everyday thing that connects us to Jesus and give us the grace that fuels us to become more and more like him each day. It's not just that Jairus and the bleeding woman are so different that makes this story intriguing. It's Jesus' timing. Jairus comes to him with an absolute emergency. Come now or my daughter will die. The bleeding woman comes to Jesus with an issue that needs to be healed. It's important, but it's not urgent. She's been suffering with this for as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive, 12 years. Surely she could have waited another hour, another day. So when she reaches out to touch Jesus' garment, he could have let her walk away with a drive-by healing. But he stops, and he engages her. And in the process, the daughter dies. If this were anyone else in the world, treating the bleeding woman instead of the dying daughter would be medical malpractice. But not for Jesus. He, he wasn't just interested in healing the bleeding woman of her physical illness. He wanted to restore her body and soul, both to God and to community, to bring her holistic salvation and begin a discipleship relationship with her. She comes to Jesus with desperation, thinking Jesus is some sort of magical miracle worker. She thinks that it's his clothes that have this magical power. But Jesus tells her, no, it's your faith that has made you well. Salvation doesn't come through magic, and it doesn't come through having a perfect belief. It comes through throwing yourself at the feet of Jesus trusting that only he can save you. She came to Jesus and he gave her more than she bargained for, not only healing her disease, but saving her from her sins and giving her lasting faith and real peace. So why does Jesus let Jairus' daughter die? Why does he make Jairus wait? Because Jesus can raise the dead just as easily as he can heal the sick. Because he wanted to give Jairus a taste of the resurrection power and bring him to a place of even greater faith. Maybe you've been there before where the situation seems so desperate and God just seems silent. You pray and you pray until you don't have any more words. You cry and you cry until there are no more tears. And you wait for God only to hear nothing. Where is God when it hurts? Why does Jesus wait? How can we trust a God who lets a little girl die? The easy answer is the sovereignty of God. Romans 8, 28, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that's all true, but in the midst of suffering and the seeming silence of God, there's something else we need to remember. 
we need to remember that Jesus knows what it's like to hear the silence of God. Later in Mark's gospel in chapter 14, when his death is looming, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and his heart is heavy. He says that his soul is sorrowful even unto death. And he prays, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus continues to the cross where he would bear the wrath of God and the sting, of the, the sting and shame of the sins of his people. In Mark 15, Jesus would cry out the words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, the Son of God was forsaken so that those who put their trust in him would know for certain that they will never be forsaken by God. Then Jesus was raised to new life so that we could know that death does not have the final word. The resurrection gives us hope that one day all things will be made new. There will be a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more sin or sickness or suffering or sorrow. Every tear will be wiped away and waiting will be a thing of the past because we'll be in eternity with God. Do you long for that day? It's only when we see the wisdom of God coupled with the resurrection power of Jesus displayed through his suffering that we can trust God even when he seems silent. Because this story has a happy ending. But that's not always the case. Even with this daughter that was raised to life, she was going to die again. Sometimes the cancer doesn't go away. Sometimes you can't escape the job cut. Sometimes the joy of pregnancy ends in miscarriage. Sometimes a single person longing for marriage never finds a spouse. Sometimes injustice and unspeakable abuse are never, uh, they occur and are never held accountable in this life. Sometimes we get to see how God works our suffering out for good, but sometimes we don't. How do we trust God in those times? Psalm 34 tells us that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. Jesus put flesh on that verse by becoming the forsaken son on the cross. And he gives us hope that can melt even the hardest heart by suffering for our sin and defeating death in his resurrection. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, then even the most terrifying enemy of death does not have the final word. So how do we respond to this passage? Well, first, we trust Jesus. We come to him in faith, knowing that he cares not just about our presenting problems, but he also wants our whole hearts. We lament the suffering experienced in the silence of God. 
yet we hope and joy that one day he will make all things new. We remember that we are just as desperately in need of Jesus as the people in this story. We worship Jesus for his tender compassion. And we help those who are far from Jesus see that he is not scary, he is not threatening, but Jesus is utterly approachable. Offering salvation to any sinner who is willing to fall at his feet and throw themselves at him. We ask the Holy Spirit to help us grow in becoming more tender and compassionate like Jesus so that we can care for the poor, the vulnerable, the lonely, and the suffering. Who are those people in your life? How could you grow in your awareness of outsiders and those who need the tender love of Jesus embodied to them? What would it look like if compassion was our apologetic, if our suffering communicated the gospel to a world that desperately needed Jesus, the fact that Christians could suffer yet without, uh, suffer with hope? Brothers and sisters, Jesus meets us in our deepest suffering with a tenderness that restores, timing that leaves us baffled, but a resurrection power that offers hope beyond the grave. There is no need to impress that kind of Savior. There's no reason to minimize your sin. The cross is big enough to cover all of it. All the fitness that he requires is to feel your need for him. He was forsaken so that those who are united to him in faith could endure the trials of life with a hope greater than death. Will you come to him? Let's pray. God, thank you for the way you have loved us in your Son. Thank you for being a God who is compassionate and gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love. You are so faithful. And Jesus, thank you for being utterly approachable and for loving us enough not to take what we come to you with, but to, to go even deeper so that we might trust you with our whole hearts. Give us your eyes for the people around us who are suffering and, and use your Holy Spirit to make us more like you so that we can care well for others and show a desperate and needy world the tender love and resurrection power of a Savior. We pray this all in Jesus' name, by your Spirit. Amen.